Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, July 6th. Getting back to work after that long weekend for the 4th of July. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, primarily we are going to have a conversation. We're going to discuss the news of the world, all the news that is fit to podcast, as it were. And part of our aim here is going to be to evaluate information, no matter where it comes from, to keep our conversations in good faith and assume good faith on the side of people who may not necessarily agree with us. We're always going to do our best to maintain this good faith appearance and hopefully reality and keep our listeners adequately informed. Yeah. You see, we realize that uh, we're only human and, you know, our view doesn't come from nowhere. We definitely have beliefs about things. We are not just some neutral arbiters, but we acknowledge that, you know. It's Wait, good. Joe, are you, calling, are you calling balls and strikes? No, no. I'm only calling strikes when I want to see them. <laughs> Um, but no, we, we, uh, our view doesn't come from nowhere. We, uh, but we also don't know everything. We don't know every viewpoint. And so we can't sit upon the ivory tower because we don't know everything. And our viewpoint isn't the only one that matters. We're only adequately informed. We're not fully informed. We're not the end all be all of information and the topics we discuss because, you know, really, we're just in the podcast genre of two dudes talking, tried and true. But anyway, <laughs> Evan, what are we going to start off with today? So we want to lead with a story here that ties in issues of popular culture, celebrity, and also justice. And we want to talk about the ongoing Britney Spears conservatorship and the Free Britney movement. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's been quite an interesting go of it. How how did this all start back in the day, Evan? So way way back in the day, we're gonna flash it all the way back to two thousand eight when Britney Spears was having a lot of trouble in her personal life. She had experienced a death in her family. The paparazzi were hounding her nonstop clearly just dealing with the life of fame and constant exposure was getting to her. And so, as would happen to many people put under that type of strain, she experienced a sort of a mental break. She shaved her head. She began attacking the paparazzi. I I have as well. Like, it's (laughs) it's a thing we do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a little little bit more culturally deviant for a woman to do it, but that's not to say it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially 2008, um, when we had different understandings and norms regarding gendered appearance and behavior. But nonetheless, um, she was in a bad place, and she sought mental health counseling. And at this point, her father petitioned the court to be granted a conservatorship over Britney's life and estate and affairs. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about what it means to have a conservatorship? So, yeah, a conservatorship is an interesting arrangement. Um, It's not exactly the same, but if you've ever heard of someone who has the power of attorney over someone, it's similar to that, but it's more encompassing. So, power of attorney. Yeah, so, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to follow up on power of attorney. Yeah, so power of attorney means someone has the ability to make certain legally binding decisions for you. But a conservatorship means essentially that you have been deemed by a court to be unfit to keep yourself safe and healthy and manage your monetary and life affairs, and they essentially become your guardian, even though you are an adult. And one more note about conservatorship that I want to make before I throw it back to Joe is that conservatorships are mainly granted in cases where someone is elderly and is unlikely to ever regain control of their faculties. The situation where Brittany was placed into a conservatorship when she was so young is really anomalous, but certainly not illegal. The the, the sticking point here is that at the time when a conservatorship is granted, 
All you need to do is prove that the person is unfit to manage their affairs. Obviously, there's a fairly high bar to clear, but really you just have to prove it once. And then the conservatorship is granted ad infinitum. There's never a point where you have to recertify that someone still needs the conservatorship. And in fact, it is the responsibility of the conservatee to prove that they no longer need the conservatorship. Yeah. Well, you basically took my points there, bud. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's why I wanted you to go. But we, we deferred yeah. in the wrong. Order. Yeah, we deferred in the wrong direction. <laughs> Fuck. But yeah, it is interesting. So um, a conservatorship is more encompassing than the uh, power of attorney. Like Evan said, uh, power of attorney is making decisions for someone kind of on, uh, you know, in a defined scope. Um, you know, it's like. You know, do you go into a nursing home or, you know, do you do this with, you know, your assets or, you know, what have you decisions like that. Whereas conservatorship, you know, it, it's also split up. You know, you could take financial conservatorship over someone over their estate, which is basically all their money, you know, assets and belongings and all that kind of stuff and take over that. But then there's also the kind of general conservatorship, which has control over one's life, you know, what they do in their lives. Like, like Evan said, it's kind of like having a parent, but as an adult, you know, or it can at least play out like that where, um, you know, if you are the conservatee, you know, the person who is under a conservatorship you can essentially be forced to do things, which is just a very strange, you know, uh, you know, arrangement. You know, it's not so much, it, it, you know, always preventing yourself or them from doing harm to themselves. It it can take a much more active role on things. And, you know, there have been talks that of, you know, people out there wanting to reform conservatorships, you know, kind of from the disability rights, you know, angle. But, you know, it's just, um, it's pretty crazy that a full-fledged adult, Britney Spears, is um, even, what has it been, 13 years after her big mental break mm -hmm. is still under a strenuous conservatorship is just something crazy because like Evan said, you know, most conservatorships are for people who are elderly and kind of out of their faculties. And, you know, there are still discussions of, you know, whether that's something that's like just, and sometimes it's called for, but sometimes it goes against their wishes and, you know, you get into, you know, things of free will and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, truly is an anomaly and quite bonkers that um, they still have a conservatorship over Britney Spears because it is for forever when you get one. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, Until it is appealed or overturned. Right. But like, I wouldn't know that. Like, there is, there are very few societal norms around this weird topic of mm -hmm. a like nobody knows their rights in this situation exactly it hardly ever comes up and specifically within britney's situation her lawyer is actually in hot water because for the past 13 years he has not told her that she has a right to legally appeal the decision um yeah. and that that is another interesting wrinkle to it is because under conservatorship law in california britney has the right to her own attorney but she can't pick her own attorney because that is something that falls under the purview of the conservator. So, you know, her father, who is her conservator, he was her co-conservator for a while, but the other attorney who was handling it stepped down a couple of years back. And the, the attorney that was picked for Brittany, yeah, has now been accused of not assiduously defending his client because he did not tell her that she had the right to attempt to fight this in court. Right. And... It's so weird. Like, it feels like a topic, you know, like uh, every once in a while, like a you'll hear of a well, there the, there is the grand story of like a journalist um, getting herself admitted into a men's, mental institution and then like trying to prove her way out. And just at every turn, the like there was real no way to get out 
um, to prove this is the out. basis for Steven Soderbergh's wonderful horror film Unsane that yeah. came out a couple years back. Check that out, everyone. Yeah, I'll check it out too. Um, it's great, but but you know this conservatorship. It really kind of seems like it, where everywhere you turn, it's like showing, like trying to show that you're not insane and basic things can be taken as you having weird mental condition when it's Mm -hmm. if and if you're under that suspicion it looks suspicious but if you're just a normal person it looks normal like there was talk of like whether she wanted to go to rehearsals for her tour or something and it's like i don't know if you're just you know deemed a normal person that's just whatever behavior and nobody's looking at that with strict scrutiny but then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're you say you have mental health issues and then it's this big to do. It, it creates yeah. hubbub. Specifically, one story that I remember reading talked about how she objected to a dance move in a dance routine that she was supposed to do for a performance. And rather that being viewed as an artist disagreeing with someone else's artistic suggestion, it was viewed as non-compliance and disruptive behavior because this conservatorship infantilizes her and casts any of her objections as problems instead of just a legitimate disagreement of opinion. Yeah. And that is another... Go ahead, please. Well, I mean... I, my point was going to go on in a different direction. If you got something to add to that, go no, on. no, go, you go for it. I was well, also. I thought. Pivot. I thought it was great. I think it's crazy how there's this big tension with the conservatorship and the conservator is her dad. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's fucking wild to me. Like, you know, even if things were rocky with my parents and you know our lives, and maybe at some point. You know, I needed to have them take great control over my life. I still feel like at some point, you know, I would be able to have a real to real conversation with my parents or an understanding that like, hey, I'm better now and I can handle this. Like, it's just fucking what that 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 Brittany is having to go to court in order for her dad to release control over her life. Yeah. So that is kind of the the big crux of it all, right? Is why is Britney's father controlling her life when she is clearly not in the same place that she was when she had her mental break in 2008? Since being placed under this conservatorship, Britney has played tours and had a residency in Las Vegas, which, you know, she performed and choreographed by herself, essentially. She was a judge on The X Factor. She recorded four albums, including the absolute bangers Circus and Femme Fatale, which would have been popular when we were in high school. You know, songs we heard on the radio were written and recorded by someone who, for all intents and purposes, did not even have her own freedom. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of this is that all of these things that Britney is still able to do are generating a huge amount of money. Her estate is estimated to be worth in the range of 130 to $140 million. Mm-hmm. And part of the conservatorship, at least as the setup that Britney and her father have, is that... The conservator picks not only the allowance for the conservatee, but also is essentially able to set their own fee for being a conservator. That's part of the conservator law is that the person who is in control gets to take an amount of payment for their services as a conservator and it's paid for by the conservatee out of their estate. So essentially... Brittany is receiving $2,000 a week in allowance when she is worth over 100 mil. Mm-hmm. And the conservatorship is charging her a fee of $10,000 a week to perform the conservatorship. Yeah. So at this point, it seems tough to conclude that this is anything other than a scam. It seems that 
this is an easy way for the Spears family to leech off of Britney, keep her under control, and keep a little tap of money running so that they can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Well, and it, it's almost like a, 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 you know, a poetic tragedy that like, I, I'm not fully up on all that went into Britney Spears break in, you know, 2008. But part of it was, at least my understanding, people talk about this kind of pipeline where they create these um, young women pop stars and it's been kind of like an established treadmill where, you know, they create them as a young, you know, kind of the Disney star, which Britney Spears was, I believe. Mickey and, Mouse Club. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, take take that parlay it into a, um, you know, kind of young adult or, you know, older teens pop star and then all, you know, and keep parlaying that where um, they are able to boost this young woman with, you know, all the charisma or looks or what have you about them. And, you know, these corporations are able to essentially exploit that. And, you know, through these deals where they're, they're basically able to get a term on that that is equal to, you know, their... Um, you know, young adult lives and, you know, some of the prime years to do that for them or they end up making them the prime years. And, you know, they basically just can milk these young women for whatever they're worth, you know, do these contracts that they get early on. Whereas it's like the Spears family has figured out a way to continue doing that to Brittany. Like she is their cash cow that they are just still milking. And mm-hmm. it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Um, so wh- why is this coming to light now? Well, the Free Britney movement has gained traction in recent years where celebrities and fans have rallied in an attempt to create public pressure for reviewing Britney's conservatorship case to hopefully restore her autonomy and legal rights. But even more recently than that, Britney finally found out that she could challenge her conservatorship in court, and there has been audio released of her testimony, which is really pretty harrowing. So, as part of her conservatorship, Brittany does not have the right, legally, to make medical decisions for herself. So currently, Brittany is interested in getting married and having children, but her father has decided that this would be too complicated for his life and he doesn't want it. So he has denied Brittany the right to get married and she has an IUD for birth control and he will not allow Brittany to see a licensed medical professional about getting it removed because he doesn't believe that she should have any more children, even though that is what she wants. She has no bodily autonomy. She also has no medical autonomy in terms of control over medication. So that incident that I mentioned earlier where she objected to a dance move in the choreography, because that was seen as her being non-compliant, she was forcibly administered lithium to make her more compliant. So it just seems really, really perverse that she has the abilities to be a functioning adult in a highly demanding industry such as the music industry and yet she is being denied this basic bodily and medical autonomy yeah i mean that that not being able to have autonomy over that kind of stuff is just gross and it it's crazy to think Like, you know, this is almost like how we talk about uh, long prison sentences. Like, are there crimes that indeed make it, you know, to the point where you are so dangerous that if you ever re-enter civilization that you will be a menace or, you know, you deserve to be away for all that time? Where it's like, do you have, like, someone like this, is it possible to have a mental break so hard that you aren't ever able to have control over your own life and make bigger decisions ever again. Yeah. Ever again. (laughs) And I would, to me, the answer is very obviously no, but 
I mean, this is it's just wild stuff. The the fact that <laughs> like, you know, the IUD part is horrible and that's a tragedy, but like I I, I just think of the lithium thing. Like it's just mm-hmm. like she says something about her life and you know wants to do something like make a creative decision and it's like no 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 shh, shh, shh. here you go here's your pills and we'll, we'll try this again in a little bit that's fucking that's fucking crazy it's horrific yeah and you know i i feel like in this debate you know i haven't seen it but I'm sure there are some people who would be like, well, you know, she's still not doing this, whatever. And it's like, you know, part of life is having the license to be able to do things as shittily or not shittily as you want. (laughs) You know? Yeah. There are plenty of people who are not able to handle their own lives. And you know what? They don't have conservatorships over their lives. Um, You know, that's part of living life is that we all do it to different degrees and are better and worse at certain things but that doesn't you know and just because somebody does their life shittily does not mean that they get to um, have their life forfeited over to the whims of another person for forever like that's just insane And that's the bitch of this legal maneuvering, though, is that they got her when she was at her absolute lowest and when a court would believe that she needed the protection of a conservatorship. And because of the nature of how the conservatorship is established, they have her no matter what she does or how much she improves from that all time low that she experienced in 2008. She will have to petition a court for her own freedom. Yeah. And then, and then, like, you know, again, it's like the person trying to get out of the insane asylum. It's like, tr- like trying to prove that you don't belong there or belong to it can be used as evidence that you do belong. And yeah, it's, it's just, the the catch twenty two, yeah. classic catch twenty two. Yeah, it's 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 insane, and it's just horrible that. You know, for a long time, I had, you know, heard like Free Britney or stuff like that. And, and you know, I grew up in that era and I, you know, there were, there was a lot of disrespect to Britney in the late 2000s, early teens. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, she was the butt of many jokes, um, you know, lots of infantilization, lots of, you know, what have you, and especially around the time of her breakdown. I mean... I still, I made allusions to this, but I still just find it funny how almost every time this is discussed, they bring up the fact that she shaved her head like it was like this ground-shaking, monumental Jesus making him cry moment. Um, But Like, oh, this proves that she is gone. Yeah, yeah. And then I just do it on a, you know, every other month basis. You know, again, it's gendered, but it's, it's just... It's interesting. Well, yeah, but no, oh. it's it's a good discussion to get into because I think that um, something we have been alluding to but not squaring right in the face here is the role that sexism in the media has played in the Britney case because when uh, this happens a lot, celebrities do bad things and they become the butt of jokes, but then sort of how society responds is very different and very gendered. When Tom Cruise jumped on Oprah's couch, nobody tried to say that he was unfit to handle his own affairs. You know, when Charlie Sheen talked about uh, tiger blood and whatever, he was not legally restricted from making his own medical decisions. The list goes on and on. They're they're just kind of seen as bad boys, and it almost helps their career. Russell Crowe, Gary Busey, Mel Gibson, like, people who are doing crazy things and suffering public mental health breaks, as long as they're men, they're really not faced with this huge legal penalty for having a tough time in the public eye. But Brittany, you know, shaves her head, which is something, oh, women are not supposed to do. And she stands up for herself to paparazzi again. Oh, not something that women are supposed to do. And this belief that she is unfit to handle her affairs and is so deviant 
gains so much traction that when it ends up in front of a judge, he rules that she cannot be the master of her own destiny anymore. And I don't think it would be the same. I don't think anyone would have tried to gain conservatorship over a man, even if the man was exhibiting the exact same behavior. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I still think of what's going on with Brittany is crazy. And, you know, the the ridicule that she has received has been gendered. But, like, a lot of those examples, those people were also called crazy. But then there's also other women who have done crazy things and they haven't had a conservatorship enacted upon them. I think just like what's going on with Brittany just seems to be just a crazy one-off with a family trying to seek an opportunistic power grab over her. Um, so well, I I'm don't not know. trying to argue that like a, a woman who exhibits negative behavior is automatically, you know, locked and bound. But I think it's it's a vulnerability thing. Mm-hmm. I think that because Brittany had an opportunistic family and she was a woman that's what creates the conditions for this to happen or i think also about amy winehouse who was ridiculed and didn't get any of that residual cool cred for being like a badass like maybe charlie sheen would get and yeah nobody forced her into a conservatorship but she drank herself to death by the time she was 27 i I, i'm not trying to make the claim that like yeah i yeah (laughs) um so i'm not trying to say that any woman is automatically snapped up and put under lock and key but i I think there's an undeniable extra layer of vulnerability that is placed upon women that is rooted in gendered expectations and sexism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting how like, you know, you mentioned with all these men who had weird mental breakdowns, it's like, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation is like, hey, look at this weirdo, but <laughs> just some dude being weird. <laughs> um, it's still, you know, you know, valid for ridicule, but it's almost like just some dude, whereas a woman has a big break like this, you know, it's like, what's going on? You know, it's the kind of infantilization. It's like, is she able to handle this? It does not look like all of her marbles are together. Are we going to have to do something to take care of her? Um, so Charlie Sheen shot his fiance. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. He's... And then I still just have the impulse. Uh, what a zany guy. Exactly. Like, that's that's that is how it's treated. It's like this this crazy story. And like, he, he didn't go to jail and nothing happened. Yeah. And then, you know, Brittany has a tough time while she's dealing with a death in the family and a divorce. She was divorcing Kevin yeah. Federline at the time. And. And like custody years later, of her kid and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And 13 years later, she's still paying for that low moment. Yeah. 13 yeah. years. And and theoretically could go on for the rest of her life. Yeah. Very easily. I mean, ho- hopefully there are enough, you know, hopefully there's enough public support that there are enough interested, perhaps opportunistic themselves, but for good um people who will come to her legal defense because I, I feel like there's got to be a case a, a, a relatively straightforward case on why she doesn't need this conservatorship yeah. anymore and so at the very least yeah yes hopefully the relevant people will come to her aid the ACLU has offered to represent her if she wants to go that route Hopefully there will be enough legal talent who finds purpose in this cause that they will be able to get Brittany freed, but it won't undo the harm that the conservatorship has caused her and it will never give her back the years of lack of autonomy that was stripped from her. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she was saying how, you know, her mental health is horrible. She cries basically every day. I mean, yeah, it's pretty fucked, especially when it's um, at the behest of like 
a family member, you know, mm-hmm. your father. That's that's just fucking fucking bananas, yo. And I, maybe we should explore that a little bit more, the fi- family dynamic here, because there is, I think, a strain of defense that comes from other Spears family members that says, you know, this is a family matter and it's better for our family to have Jamie, her father, calling the shots in her life. That's that's a defense I've heard. But on some level, I feel like this isn't really a family matter. This is a matter of personal autonomy as experienced by Brittany, in which case it is open for our commentary and consideration. And it just seems to me like, yeah, the fact that it is her family member doesn't make it any better or more defensible. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be one thing if this was like the way Brittany did business was that it was essentially a family enterprise and like Jamie was her father or no, <laughs> I just did that like that. Was like Jamie was her agent. That's what I was trying to say. Like or her manager, like that'd be mm-hmm. one thing. And, and, you know, if it was all in the family and and, you know, if that was the case, I'm pretty sure they would probably figure that, you know, any disagreements out within the family because, you know, Brittany choosing her father to be her manager or agent would be a consenting relationship. Mm-hmm. Whereas the whole point of this is that, um, you know, Brittany doesn't have the autonomy over her life to make her own decisions, not just business decisions. Yeah, not- she cannot even get an unwanted medical device removed from her body. Yeah. You know, it's not saying that, like, she's not going to court to not hear the advice of her father about what she should do in her career. It's bigger than that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's And more fundamental to yeah, her yeah. experience and, of life. And you know what? Maybe it could even be true that, um, you know, Jamie Spears would have, you know, be able to best like um manage her career and all that kind of stuff but that doesn't mean that he should have the full legal authority over her Mm -hmm. like that should be her choice to be able to work in her career with her father not like given a legal entity over her you know legal rule he will always be her father and he always can advise her on what he thinks is best for her to do. But it seems to me that we are well past the point where the conservatorship has utility to Brittany's safety and well-being. And at this point, it is an unnecessary infringement upon the freedom of a rational more or less healthy adult. And so there, despite the fact that she still does legally have the conservatorship placed upon her due to the way that that works legally on a moral level, I don't think this is defensible any longer. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are definitely period, you know, instances out in the world where like a parent, if they were able to force their kids and, have you know kids to do certain things that they could enact better lives for them you know i think of sometimes you know there's like the the kid who um you know like moves you know still lives with the parents and plays video games all day and doesn't really have any aspirations like you know uh you know i'm sure they have things going on with their in their lives mentally that make things tough but i mean it's like we don't grant conservatorship over those kids because they would be better served by doing what their parents told them to do as an adult. But like we don't, they still are get to be their own distinct legal entity and have the freedom to do what they want. It just may not be the most desirable. You know, we don't, we don't grant people, you know, we don't give away people's freedoms just because we think that they may have a better life or, you know, reach a higher level of attainment if their parents were in charge. Like, that's just not how it works. Yeah. 
And but that's being given as a reason. You know, this is almost, you know, this is, um, you know, Kanye comes into the theory of once something happens, then no matter why it happens, people will still defend it. Yeah. Like, you know, um, like this happens in public policy all the time. Like some system will come together because of we- some weird compromise between some characters in the Senate in the 70s. And then that's the system we have. And then, you know, people will just arise to defend it just wholesale because that's the way it has been. So, of you know, it's it's like that with seems to be with Britney's case. You know, there are some defenders who are like, well, this has been working out well for her or something like that. And maybe I'm straw manning, but like it's it's just it's not good, <laughs> even if, you know you know, whatever maybe upsides there is. We don't, we don't, especially in this country, we don't just give away someone's freedom for, you know, piddly shit like that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, damn it. We're recording this on the 4th of July. I believe, I believe Brittany needs to break away from the tyranny, but, and I'm getting a little too jokey for it because this is a serious subject. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting. But you tied it into the holiday, and I think that's a good place to leave it, unless you have any other comments? Nope. Yeah. Uh, Free Britney. This movement has traction. So what else are we talking about today, Joe? Evan, we are going to talk about the boogeyman. Oh, wait. No. The boogeyman subject. The boogeyman's idea. The scourge upon our country that is critical race theory. And I, I realize I may not have been as magnanimous at, in good faith as we were, you know, as we like to proclaim. So critical race theory. <laughs> this may be something <laughs> that you've heard talked about recently. Um, it has been a recent hot subject matter on the likes of like a Tucker Carlson or Fox News or you know more conservative media and and it's been a subject of legislation in states like uh Florida or at least proposed legislation um banning its teaching and what is critical race theory some of you may know, some of you may not. You maybe heard the term thrown around, um, but it isn't really what a lot of people have talked about. Um, I'll give one version, and then Evan has a slightly different version of it that we can talk about. Critical race theory, at least as you know, as the named version of this arose as a legal theory of how to look at laws because there are, um, you know, there used to be that in the United States, there were laws that were racist because they were very explicitly racist. You know, a law saying that black people can't go and do certain things. That's a racist law through and through. So, Get rid of them. Get rid of. So we got rid of all the, you know, outwardly racist laws. But then we still saw that some laws had greater racial impact on minorities or specifically black Americans. And, you know, there became a discussion because, you know, these new laws were colorblind. You know, and most law, you know, basically any law that wasn't colorblind was struck down. So how do you analyze laws then? Well, you can go in and this is the critical race theory part. You can look at specific laws and see how they came about and discern whether the motivation for these laws was based in race you know, in racial outcomes, because because, you know, you could create a law in a way that makes it so that it, it, you know, it tacks on to something between the two races 
and outlaw something that, you know, uh, you know, one race will have or the other. So it can have a racial out, you know, impact, even though the law itself is colorblind. And such that, as the distinction between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. Yeah. Or or the prevalence of single family exclusionary zoning. That's something else that, you know, you go back and see what was what were the people doing at the time that motivated them to make this law and was it racially motivated that's on what level what critical race theory is now even what's your what's your take what there there's because it can be kind of there's a couple different things yeah, so my understanding of critical theory and specifically critical race theory comes from my time in college when I was learning about dialectical analysis. So dialectics or dialectical analysis is a way where you try to use multiple sources and multiple approaches to arrive at a meaning of truth when evaluating a topic. And so there's three main parts to a dialectical analysis. Number one is sort of a positivist look or a more quantitative approach. So we say, look at the numbers, this is what we can prove scientifically, and we can draw our conclusions this way. The next plank is a more qualitative approach where you sort of listen to narratives and you try to understand people's experiences and how they are subjectively experiencing things. And this is another way to make meaning, essentially, you know, coded interviews and again a more qualitative approach where you're trying to draw meaning out of things even if you don't have an exact statistical value to assign to them and then the third part of dialectics is a critical approach and a critical approach is where you examine a subject by trying to understand the role that power dynamics play within that subject so even if you don't have any data to support what you're trying to find. And even if people aren't able to articulate it in a qualitative sense, you can still try to examine how structures are built around power imbalances. I, I think that that is what I was attempting to do in our previous segment when we were pulling apart, hey, what role does gender play in the treatment of Britney Spears or Amy Winehouse? That's a very critical approach, even though I didn't have any statistical backing and I didn't have any testimonials from Britney saying, I'm being treated this way because I'm a woman, we can still evaluate the roles that power dynamics and hierarchies play in a situation. Mm -hmm. So that's critical theory generally. And then obviously as applied to race, you can derive a concept of critical race theory where we challenge laws or social institutions or cultural phenomena under the guise by asking how have racial hierarchies and racist structures influenced these events and how does that shape our interpretation of these events or phenomena? Yeah. So these are the interpretations of what critical race theory is. Essentially looking at institutions and phenomena in the world and seeing, trying to look at it a little bit more closely on how it is impact between, you know, within race relations mm -hmm. um, and not just what the letter of the law is. Because essentially since the Civil Rights Act, you know, in the United States, nobody's like, you know, you can't make a law that is explicitly racist by saying Black people do this. You know, you can't do that anymore. But, you know, people who have racial, you know, desires to do racial, you know, construction or, or you know, one favor one over the other still are out there trying to do things. And there are ways to do that without being explicit about it. And... Mm -hmm. You can go out there and using these tools that are deemed critical race theory, look into it. But 
That And a quick note that I want to yeah. say is that as an author like Ibram X. Kendi would argue, it doesn't even have to derive from a bigoted individual attempting to carry out a covertly racist project. Some things, either through ignorance or accident or, or some horrible combination, end up creating racial disparities regardless of intent but that right. doesn't mean that those racial disparities don't exist and it doesn't mean that those resultant structures are not themselves racist by definition of creating a racial disparity and so even if you don't factor intent into it at all you can still use critical race theory to interrogate stuff like that right right it's not just the secret racist working along we can people in working in good faith can create racial disparities in systems that they, you know, manifest. Yes. Um, so that's what critical race theory is as yeah, far. Sort of on a blanket level, as how, how I boil it down is that it's just trying to accept that racism is real and figure out how that affects all the things around us. Yeah. It's an analytical tool for higher level critical analysis. So, Evan, are they teaching this in elementary schools? Um, they're not teaching it to my elementary school students, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I, well, we consulted the expert. We actually had Evan's wholly informed. Um, but no, it's... It, it, it has, my kids are struggling to learn multiplication, okay? We're not getting them to critical race theory. <laughs> Take your lithium and we'll go forward. Oh, that's uh, bad. Dark. That's bad of me. It is dark. Um, no, but there it has been, it has become this almost, I mean, I want to say boogeyman, but I still want to try and take their arguments at good faith because that's what we try to do. So what what is being... How is it critical race theory being portrayed as or what's the fear associated with this? Because I think what Evan and I described, at least as a part of an analytical toolkit, you know, maybe not the sole tool, but, you know, at least being part of it, it's a helpful concept, you know, to look at things and see how race affects you know or how race is affected by the systems of the world around us and there seems to be a fear that and you know in some ways i can maybe see it but let me get into it is that somehow you know this kind of gets lumped into like the 1619 project and other things where there is a group of people who are really not liking how much uh, race is being centered in the American history and how we look at our country. There are a bunch of people who see who want to believe the kind of version of American history that at least I was taught in you know growing up that you know we are a country birthed on freedom uh trying to aspire to our higher ideals and when we come together we can do really great things and create prosperity for all in kind of a race neutral way whereas there is a more coming version of american history that is more aligned with the 1619 project that looks at a at our country and our history as inherently a conflict between the races between african americans or and sometimes more broadly you know just black people in general and white America and whatever those are defined at every any given moment. And there are some people who have real issue with that version 
of an American history because it is not as triumphant. It It's no longer a story of, or at least to these people, it's no longer a story of triumph and, you know, progress and a story of sin and something to be ashamed of. And this seems to be what the worry is. I mean, and they cloak it as critical race theory, whereas I don't believe critical race theory is being taught in a single K through 12 school in the United States. But this is what is being wrapped up as the fear of critical race theory is this new way of teaching and looking at American history. So what do you think of that? Evan? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in the Iglesias article that you shared with me, there was some interesting points, right? That there are, again, to to give credence to the other side, to be in good faith, there are some things that kind of end up lumped in with the CRT discourse that are pretty dumb, right? Like people who want to say that Abraham Lincoln is this historical villain and, you know, the, the progress that he helped to initiate means nothing and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But, but that stuff's relatively easy to deflect and is more or less unconnected from the actual project of critical race theory. Critical race theory, and, and again, like you said, it's not something that is being taught in schools, although that's being weaponized as like a thing. Oh, we can't let our children be taught this and what have you. I mean, um, not many children are being taught critical tools to begin with. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's something that I experienced in one class my senior year of college. You know, yeah. Otherwise, I would be pretty lost in this whole discourse. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and th- there's also all this hullabaloo made about the 1619 Project, which is interesting. But at the end of the day, it was a journalistic project on how those journalists wish education had been reflected. It's not really anything that permeated into school curriculum in any sort of meaningful way. And so, you know, I I think we're kind of needing to draw a distinction here on what people say they're afraid of and what they're really afraid of. Because there is a fear, something that I've heard from conservative talking heads, is that critical race theory is going to teach people who know about it to hate America. And that's not really true. Um, You know, there's some people who may use critical tools and come to their independent conclusion that America is irredeemable and that the role that racism has played in shaping our country is unforgivable. And, you know, that might happen. But really, I think what people are afraid of is that they're afraid that we are going to have to pull apart really difficult and inconvenient realities about American history and about American law. I mean, reading The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein is an uncomfortable experience to there were be times, awakened. Like I, I listened to the audiobook and you know <laughs> I I am generally a pretty stone cold person, you know, I, I don't have a ton of emotions <laughs> and we were even poking fun of that before the show. But like there were times listening to The Color of Law that I would have to pause it. And, you know, I was normally listening in my car and I'd bang on my steering wheel for like a minute because I'd be like, what the fuck? This is fucked up. How did I not know about this? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think there, are, you know, th- that is the more realistic, I think, response to beginning to understand a critical framework for conceptualizing race in America is beginning to understand the legacy of these centuries-long power hierarchies based along racial lines. And it is uncomfortable, and it does force us to ask questions about how our public policy should look moving forward and about what we need to do to atone for 
the legacy of these power imbalances. But that doesn't have to be inherently anti-American. That doesn't have to inspire a deep-seated hatred. But I think that there are people who are quite comfortable with the status quo. People like Tucker Carlson who can sit atop an ivory throne and benefit from the way that things are. And they don't want the curtain to be pulled back even one layer. And that is the threat. The threat is not that critical race theory is inherently un-American or that it will turn people against the country, but it forces us to consider the profound impact of racism. And that's too much for some people. Yeah. Well, because there is a kind of... There is a kind of progression on the way these ideas can happen. And it's like, if you go from believing, you know, not believing that there isn't a racial component to the grand, you know, American narrative or that you can folk, you know, look at, you know, the history of America without really looking at race besides, you know, the end of slavery then like if like going from that to accepting that there is is a huge change of an opinion you know that's mm-hmm. like a huge barrier to go across and and you know when you breach that there is definitely this moment where you believe that like it becomes hard to see the good of the past like it it becomes like if you believe it was all good, the American past was, you know, this long march forward and that we are generally absolved of the sins of our past by the progress that we have made. Once you cross into maybe we should have been doing more and there's more that we can do in the present, you know, for a lot of people that ends up look, you know, it it's kind of like the whole thing is tainted. You know, it has a high bar to you know, all of a sudden everything looks tainted and it's hard to say it's good. And, you know, this is kind of, this is something that happens to like a lot of older high school and early college students where they start to learn a little bit more about American history and like they start, you know, seeing that there was a whole lot of bad too, you know, along with the good. But, you know, they don't want to look at the good because that's what they were told, you know, almost propagandized in in their earlier education. So they kind of can go off the deep end and say, you know, the whole America, you know, the country's fucked. It's not good like I thought it was. You know, the, the country's terrible. How could we let this all this racism happen? Which, you know, I mean, valid. But then, you know, once you sit with that for a little bit and you don't leave the country and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, we can become a better nation, but we still just need to work on these things, you know? And, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to throw out all of American history. We just have to look at it and say, Hey, you know, these parts were bad, but then also these parts were good. And Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit more nuance and all that stuff. But because you, you know, just because you believe that uh, race has been a motivating, I mean, I would say some would say undercurrent, but it's been the like the current of American history. And, you know, recognizing that does not mean I hate America. I mean, I still love my country. I just want us to be able to move, keep moving forward and to maybe someday move on from this. To, you know, to be able to satisfactorily to all parties resolve it. But that does not mean that, you know, I hate my country. I love it. I would just want to, you know, have a better country. I'm not complacent in it. We are recording this on the 4th of July. Yeah. uh... (laughs) Yeah. Big, you know, we had some themes come together. (laughs) Ooh, themes. Let's remember that for the title. Yeah. Yeah. Themes. We'll call it themes. (laughs) But yeah, like, so a lot of this critical race theory stuff really is coming out 
as you know the culture wars that have been going on for years ever since Bill O'Reilly once said that there was a war on Christmas. <laughs> that you know, I'll be a little bad faith there, but um, you know, this has been a back and forth, and this is the latest chapter of it. You know, it's you know, it, it's not too dissimilar from when um, you know Tanahasi Coates was the boogeyman of like five to eight years ago. You know, it, it's not too dissimilar to that, and it's just. We're continually working on how we actually digest our racist, you know, or our history of race in the United States and what to do about that going forward and how we teach that to our young. But, you know, I, I, there was some discourse on this in the last week or so. And, you know, some people were posing like, why does it even matter what we teach our kids in history? Do they really, you know, remember it? And I'm, you know, you take some level and, you know, most kids don't remember most history, but it still matters, you know, under what light you present these ideas to kids, because that helps provide a framework for how they see the world and see our country. So, I mean, <laughs> teaching of history is probably the most political subject in all of like K through 12. Yeah. Um, education. And it's so interesting because this is not an original take by me, but maybe I can expand upon it. History seems to be the only subject where every person seems to have a very strongly held opinion on how the curriculum should be developed. Right. Like, there's there's always a moment where it's like, I can't believe we didn't learn about this in history class. And if you added up all of the topics that people on Twitter are shocked weren't taught in schools, you know, you would never have time to cover that all. We would every class of the school. day was history. Yeah, exactly. So I tend to give the developers of history curriculum some slack because there's so much fucking stuff to talk about. And, and every like day you we're said, the selection. <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, the selection of what does ultimately get taught is political and it does construct a narrative that becomes a framework for young, impressionable minds. But at the same time, I still feel like that task is Herculean and there's a lot of armchair historians yeah. who want to weigh in when really it's just so much to cover. Oh, yeah. So I, I have a friend here in town. Um, and they may even be listening. Who knows? And um, <laughs> they teach history at the high school. And they were saying to me one time how, you know, during COVID, they were teaching their history class. And it was, you know, a, a parent like contacted them and was like, hey, why weren't you teaching all this stuff and all this stuff and all this stuff? And it's like, well, if we had been in class, you know, we would have talked about those stuff and we had would have had more time. But, you know, and we're already have, you know, even under normal school time, there's only so much you can fit into the class. And then when it was a condensed online class, there was even less that you could fit into that class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is it, a history class is the, I mean. Because everybody has, I mean, not everybody, but more people have history that they understand about the country. And there's a lot of feelings that are tied up with that. And everyone wants to, you know, the bits of history that was impactful to them be taught to their kids. But, you know, it's, it, again, it's tough because... There are so many different ways that you can look at the history of the United States. There's so many different lenses and just so many different events that you can look at. Like, I, I mean, I remember that, you know, in my call or in my high school history experience, I don't really ever remember learning about Reconstruction other no. other than like hey, this is something like there was this time after the Civil War, it was called Reconstruction and it failed. And that was like the, 
that was like the thrust of it. That's about all the education I got on it. But then also I talked with this friend who's a history teacher and they were like, oh, I talk a lot about reconstruction. So it's, it, you know, it's dependent on the teacher you have. It's dependent on the time, you know, of, you know, time in history that you're taking the class and, you know, and just what is decided to be focused on. It's, it's, it's a, it's a project and it's inherently political. So that's what we should do, Joe. We should build up our own adequately informed historical curriculum. Um, Mine's going to talk a lot about the 1896 world series i think that's mm-hmm. important um yeah. what do you all think what 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 should you teach in history email us podcast at adequately informed.com yeah yeah tell us <laughs> give us all your books we need more books we need to read more history books i'm running low i got only two more books on my book pile guys oh geez oh man well you know maybe you stop by the joe hicks library Ooh, I would like that. Yeah, if I if I can put it together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Evan, do you have any more thoughts on critical race theory and what's been going on with that? No, I just uh, my my own little Evan summary is going to be that um, it's not a bad thing to consider the way that entrenched power hierarchies affect other things around us. Yeah, but that's not what's necessarily being taught to our kids. It's, yeah, the yeah. It's, the hysteria about it is a little much. Um, yeah, it, if if in the politics there was a bit more good faith in the discussion, we could there could possibly be a discussion of you know what do we teach our kids that isn't what do we teach our kids and <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, but. That's not what's being had. It's kind of trying to scare people. And I mean, I guess it's, you know, sometimes people will be appalled by things. And, you know, I constantly think, hey, you know, we're in the present. We're all just trying to figure things out. And sometimes people have bad solutions or solutions that you don't agree with. Doesn't mean it's the end of the world. You know, it's all a negotiation. Well, until the until the world ends, I mean, I, there isn't a whole lot I'm going to be able to do to stop that. So, you know, just just uh, be nice and, and negotiate nicely and maybe uh, hear their side of the you know view, you know, different views. We like different views. So I yeah. think that about does it. Uh, I don't think we had an end segment planned. No, uh, no, I think I think uh, under this format, it's more. uh yeah cultural topic and then policy headier topic yeah and then uh yeah and then goodbyes salutations (laughs) um we hope that you've uh enjoyed the episode we hope that you had a good fourth of july weekend um hope you got that monday off because i'm putting this out on tuesday for your drive into work on tuesday Hopefully you didn't have a, a boring drive on Monday, but you know, it happens. Bless up. And um, yeah, we like to thank Anthony Hitch for the music. So my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.